God, we just want to thank you for who you are. You are faithful yesterday, today, and always, God, and forever. And, and God, you are the great healer. And I just lift up those who are sick this morning, uh, just a lot, of, a lot of small, minor ailments. We just pray that you would that they would experience your healing touch. I know that a lot of them will be watching us online today, God. And I just pray even as our heads are bowed and our hearts are bowed in, in, in humility before you, God, we just pray that you would heal them and may you be glorified in everything that we go through, God, including illness, Father. We just give you all glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the things that we've committed doing here at 180 Chicago is to feature the life change that God has brought in our lives. And, and we do it because Jesus, God, is in the business of changing lives. And there have been some incredible stories of how we were on this path of destruction and God touched them and changed their lives. And now it was a complete 180. It stands for who we are as a church. And this morning I have a really special person lined up to share, Mark Maddich. Hello. Hello. We can I hear you, nothing. Mark. I got nothing. Oh, can you hear yeah. me? Yeah. Right. We got him. Uh -huh. How's it going today? Are you ready? I am ready. Well, he is ready. I'm wow. nervous. I'm, I'm a nervous wreck. You're going to be. Ready. You're going yes. to be awesome. I got to yes. say before we start, Mark is just such an inspiration to me. He actually predates me at 180 Chicago. He's one of our core members here, oh. and yeah, oh. yeah. And he and Fran have been such a blessing to us. My to wife, me. Fran. Yep. She's right there, Fran. Wife for life. <laughs> and. And you're going to hear his story, and you're going to understand how these guys genuinely love Jesus and genuinely serve Jesus and the church in whatever way they can. <laughs> so, Mark, tell us, what was your life like before you met Jesus? Before I knew Jesus, uh, it, was, it was a wreck. But it was nice. I was a really nice guy. And, uh, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah, great guy. You never, you know, but... Uh, but I, you know, I got tired of wrecking cars, going to jail, wrecking cars, going to jail, going to court, wrecking cars, going to jail. Wrecking cars? I didn't know cars. that. Oh, my goodness. Lord have mercy. Yeah. <laughs> I was on drugs. I got into some drugs. I was heavily addicted. But uh, I was a functioning addict. I had it all together. Uh, so, uh, and, and then I got arrested, and, and that's, where, that's where it started. As I was on the, oh, shit. <laughs> So you were saying that your life story was, was about 14 pages long or something? Tell me about that. So, uh, we had, uh, when I was going through uh, rehab that was court ordered, I had to go to court, you know. And I was, I was suicidal. I was, oh, just uh, in, in a bad shape. But when we went to this rehab, we had to write a seven-page biography. So I'm writing about when I started drugs, going through college, my life. I'm, so I got 14 pages now, and I got to read that in front of, <laughs> oh my goodness, you know, and the tears are coming, and uh, it was just a real mess, you know. So, uh, and, and, I, and I was, uh, at that time, I was pretty, still sick from withdrawal from the drugs. And uh, then uh, all of a sudden, you know, I, I became born again. Tell me about that. Tell, what happened? Yeah, what, what born clicked? again, you know, and, and I used to hear that in college. I hear these guys say, yeah, man, I'm born again. I said, yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> what if, you know, I had no idea what that was. But Jesus says, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. I'm like, whoa, 
So Jesus said that. Now, another thing with Jesus, if you want to find out about Jesus, read that Bible. Everything he said, everything he did was like, you know, he knew ahead of time. But anyway, getting back to that, my life was just all of a sudden like a 180 when I gave my life to God. Let him be in control. Let him drive the car, so to speak. Yeah. I just heard that the other day on the radio. Let him be in charge. So I became born again, and things started changing, like Dennis said. Things started. All of a sudden, I didn't like these things I used to like to do, you know. Mm. And, you know, my life was turning 180. And, and I read in the Bible, you become a new creation in Christ. Old things pass away. Wow. Behold, all things become new. So all them things I used to like are like, what? You know, crazy. Yeah. And no, that's, so everything that's started changing. Yeah. And, and the peace in the heart and the mind. I'm running past time. No, that's it's okay. okay. That's but the okay. peace I got in the heart and the mind from, from Christ is just absolutely unreal. You know, it's like, whoa, I'm starting to cry again. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> To him be the glory. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so that I was... I think one of the coolest things, one of the greatest things that, you know, we as pastors live for is to see lives transformed. I didn't have... I didn't know you before Christ, but I do know you now, and I just can't imagine the pre-Christ mark and, and just That's how That's what Jose was saying, that. the same thing, huh? that he can't imagine this, you know, being like that. Just ask friend. <laughs> That's true. Well, so Mark, what is God doing right now? What is the fresh thing God doing, God's doing in your life? The fresh thing now, we, God has opened the doors for us to do the prison ministry. Barb and I got our badges Friday. Yes. And, wow. and Sheila will be a new person there. A new person today, Sheila and Obi. Obi, yes. So, yeah, that is, he's opened the doors for us to go and do the prison ministry preaching the word and singing some praise songs and to be in that prison and singing them seeing them guys sing the praise songs they know the words not everybody but you know some here and there are singing the songs praising god yes that's awesome well Don't mark we now. are so honored to have you here at 180 and just thank you for reflecting christ thank in you such for a putting beautiful up with way me. yeah I could be a <laughs> that's true that's yeah. true but well let me just let me just pray for you and if you guys can just you know lift your hands towards mark God, we just want to thank you for Mark. What a precious child of God. He is God. And God, just want to thank you for his life, just the life chain that you have brought. And we glorify you, God. And we can stand with him and testify that you've done, you've done this in our lives as well, Father. In different ways. It might not look the same. But you have brought about a transformation. You have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. God, and I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing through Mark. Thank you for his faithfulness here at 180. Just coming at 7 a.m. every Sunday, setting up and, and playing the guitar. And just thank you for his faithfulness in his ministry as well at the prison and both at the hospital as a chaplain as well, God. Just ask you to continue to use him mightily for your kingdom's sake. We give you all glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, to God be the glory. Well, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That's how Charles Dickens begins his famous novel, A Tale of Two Cities. And as cliche as it might sound, it kind of captures my entire schooling experience. 
the best of times and the worst of times. I actually did most of my schooling back in India, so elementary school, middle school, high school, undergraduate school. I did it in India, and then I came here to graduate school here at Moody Bible Institute. Uh, actually, 10 years ago, this, this Wednesday was my 10th anniversary of being here. It's been a long time. Yeah. <laughs> and it was the best of times, schooling. I loved it, you know. And pretty much like here in your childhood, you don't have a care in the world. You just go to school. You, you play with your friends. You study. And I had great parents who took care of everything. I was a good student, so I had favor with my teachers. And most importantly, I loved playing cricket. And my friends loved it too. So that's what we did. Every time we had a break, we would run down to our school play yard. It wasn't that big. And we would try to catch, sneak in a game of cricket. And it was crazy. During lunch, we had a 15-minute lunch break. And, and as soon as the bell rang, we had to like run down because there would be at least 20 to 25 pickup games happening in the yard, which was probably twice the size of this auditorium. It wasn't that big. So imagine games happening all over, and we wanted the prime spot. So we would run down, you know, just get our location, and then eat our lunch. It was so much fun. But school was also the worst of times. The, ed the education system in India is notorious for being very rigid. They're very strict. It's almost, it's like military training. So we had to go in at 8 o'clock every day till 3.30, back to back to back to back classes. I think we had a 10-minute recess and a 15-minute lunch break. So we were in sessions pretty much all day. And we were allowed probably two weeks of vacation in a whole year. Imagine that. And you, if we wanted to be off, we had to send them a letter saying, Here, I hereby say that I'm actually sick. And then, like, you know, you had a doctor's letter and stuff like that. It was, it was, pretty, it was pretty intense. And we had two PE classes, physical education classes. And what was crazy was, as the semester rolled by, our math teacher, our science teacher would, would fall behind in, you know, in teaching their syllabus. So they would take up those classes. And we were like, well, that's the only fun class that we have going to the gym and playing, and these guys just take it away from us. And our, and our academics part of schooling reached its culmination in our sophomore year of high school. At the end of the year, we had this huge exam, one that was conducted by the state. And, you know, I was just looking up the stats this week, about 900,000 people, 900,000 students in their sophomore year take this exam. It's a series of exams. It goes for about two weeks. It's on every subject that you're, you know, that you've studied. So it's physics, chemistry, biology, computer science, math, English, your second language. Uh, you know, we, we it, was, it was each day. And we literally had to memorize books. And I'm not kidding you. Memorize books for these exams. Rote memorization is a huge thing. So you can imagine how much of a torture it was. And the worst thing about this exam was once the results came out, there was this huge notice board, a blackboard, right in front of school where they stick all your scores. So even the passerby knows how much you've scored in math how much you've scored in science and everything. So that's a lot of pressure. 
And the other traumatic thing about this exam is it's kind of determined the course of your life. Here am I, a 15-year-old, or probably you know, a 16-year-old, taking this exam, and my score determines my future. So if I score well, then I, then I could choose, and if I wanted to be a doctor, if I wanted to be in the medical field, I had a set of subjects that I could choose going into my junior year of high school. So I could do, you know, if I wanted to be in the medical profession, I could do physics, chemistry, biology, and, you know, life science. And then if I was wanted to go into business, I could choose economics, accounting, commerce, and so on. But you are stuck forever. You make that decision, and you're done. So you can imagine the gravity of taking these exams, getting your score, making that life choice as a 15-year-old, as a 16-year-old, and kind of like going through it the rest of our lives. Much of our lives entail making crucial decisions at critical times. Decisions that impact our future, decisions that affect how we relate with others. Who do we want to be in life? What do we want to do? Where do we want to live? Where do we want to work? Who do we marry? So on and so forth. And the passage that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus has two critical choices that he wants his listeners to make as they respond to his famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Two choices that he wants his listeners to take. And so my sermon is titled, Critical Choices. And I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 to 14. It's going to be on your screen, so if you can follow along with me. This is what Jesus says. He says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Before we get into this passage, I want to give you guys some context. We are currently in a series on the Sermon on the Mount called Echo, where Jesus' message on the mountainside 2,000 years back is as clear and powerful today as it was then. And in this sermon, what Matthew, the gospel writer, is trying to do is to protect Jesus as the Messiah, the King of the Jews. The Jews anticipated the Messiah and here Matthew was portraying him as the king of the Jews, the Messiah. And in the authority that Jesus has, Jesus paints a picture of what life looks like in his new kingdom. The identity and the impact of those who embrace him. And what this kingdom ethic looks like, how his disciples live out their calling how it tangibly affects them in their everyday lives. So we are in the home stretch of the Sermon on the Mount. I think this is week 16. And Jesus is coming to an end to his main content, the main teaching of his sermon. And now he's moving more towards application. 
And they teach us in Bible school uh, a good way to judge a sermon, a good way to even prepare your sermon is that you have got to look for three things. One is exposition, which is how you exegete the text, how you handle the text. You know, you, you want to let the text do the talking as opposed to you inserting your agenda into the text. And then second is illustration, you know. We got to take what's in that text and illustrate it for our audience so it's applicable to our real life situation. And finally, application. Sermons are not just to be meant to be informational. It's supposed to be transformational. It has to push us. It has to push the audience to make a decision. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's pushing them to make a tangible decision, one that affects their relationship with others, and two, one that affects our relationship with God. So what critical choices do we need to make to walk in Jesus' kingdom path? Verse 12 again says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So here's my restatement of what Jesus is asking us to do. Choose to treat others how you want to be treated, and you will fulfill Jesus' kingdom ethic. Choose to treat others how you want to be treated yourself. This statement is not something that is actually unique to the Bible. In fact, different versions of the statement are found in, in Buddhist literature, Indian literature, Greek literature, and even in Jewish literature. And this statement is called as the golden rule, and legend has it that it was because one of the Roman emperor, uh, Emperor Alexander Severus, he adopted this as a motto for his life. And so every public building, all his palaces, they had these words etched in gold, and hence the golden rule. Now, the interesting part with how Jesus frames it is most of the other versions of this statement is in the negative. But Jesus frames it in the positive. What do I mean by negative? For example, Confucius, he says, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. And even one of the Hebrew uh, rabbis, Hillel, it was just before Jesus' time, he says, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow creatures. And now there's a big difference with that. There's a big difference with framing it in the negative as opposed to the positive. Because if it's the negative, you don't have to do much. You don't have to do much. If you don't want to lie to others, you just have to be passive. You don't have to do much. Whereas if you frame it in the positive, this is something that pushes you forward. You have to be actively pursuing the good of another person as opposed to hiding out or withdrawing from the world. And Jesus says, choose to treat others, or whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And I could see at least two motivations of why Jesus says that. Last week we heard about how God wants us to ask, seek, and knock in prayer. And our Father being such a good God, He gives things as we ask Him. And when we do good to others, we reflect the nature of our gracious Father. And so Jesus says, choose to treat others how you want to be treated. And then He goes on to say, 
you will fulfill or for this is the law and the prophets. And here Jesus brings the Sermon on the Mount a full circle. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, I did not come to destroy the law. I've come here to fulfill the law. And Jesus says, well, if you treat others the way you want to be treated yourself, you will fulfill the law. A commentator writes, with the golden rule, Jesus articulates in one statement the essence of God's will as revealed in all of the Old Testament and the essence of kingdom life for his disciples. One statement that encapsulates what the gist of the Old Testament is to do good to others. And later on in the book of Matthew, we see Jesus talks about the first and the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God. And then he goes on to say, love your neighbor as yourself, which is a restatement of the golden rule. This past week, as I was preparing for this sermon, I was, I was just scrolling on Facebook, and I came across this really poignant story that kind of reveals or illustrates what I'm, you know, what Jesus is trying to say or what I'm trying to say here with, you know, this passage. And I'm going to read that for you. This is a lady who writes, I was thrift shopping for dorm stuff. The cashier appeared to be one of the most unhappy, maddest people ever. I was six people deep in the line and it seemed like she got more and more exasperated with each passing customer. She was especially incensed when one of my unmarked items needed a price check. It sent this poor woman toppling right over the edge and I bore the brunt of her fall. But as she rang up my items, I felt a little tingle in my spirit, a soul nudge. I tried to bargain with Jesus and told him that the extra little bit of cash in my wallet was not meant for her. It should surely go to someone sweeter and kinder, more deserving or at least appreciative, maybe. Not someone downright mean and angry. But God did not budge, nor did the tingle. So I paid my bill and reluctantly found my wallet. I slipped her some cash and she handed me my receipt. She was caught off guard by the gesture. She gripped the folded bill with one hand and paused then slid her mask down with the other hand. Her loud, stern voice got quiet when she whispered a single word, why? To which I answered two words back, soul nudge. There was another pause, a brief reckoning of sorts when she grabbed my hand and held on. Now I was the one caught off guard, she said. Today is my 75th birthday, and nobody has called me. Not my sister, not one of my kids, none of these people here, nobody, nothing. I don't think I can remember ever being so sad in my life. The person writes, I felt the tingle again, and I said, was somebody remembered? Well, I did not see Jesus, that small soul nudge told me that he saw her. The birthday news had made its way beside me and two more customers connected. There was a small chorus of chirping happy birthdays. She just stood there patting her heart 
crying and taking it all in. The words penetrated, anger dissipated, hope manifested. The tingle became tangible. As Jesus' disciples, we have a powerful opportunity, a powerful way to impact our world, to be the salt and the light, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And when we start doing that consistently, as Pastor Carl says, Katie, bar the door. There's no limit to what God can do through us. What does this mean? What does treating others the way we want to be treated mean? It means that we want to be treated, we, we want to care for the needs with the same passion and attention with which we want our, our own needs to be met. Thinking and speaking of others the same way we would want to be thought of or spoken of. Giving others the same grace in their failures that we want to receive for our failures and much more. It is a wholehearted love and consideration for the other person, the kind that would make us feel most loved, valued, and respected. Now, if you're like me, you know this is hard. This is not something that we can do in our own strength. This is not something that's natural for us. We are selfish, we are self-centered, we want what's best for us, and it's hard to go against the grain of who we are and what the world does. It's hard. But that's precisely the point of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus raises the bar to such an extent that you can't do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. We need God's empowerment to be able to live out the life that God wants us to. And it's fitting that Jesus puts prayer. Jesus talks about prayer right before this passage with the ask, seek, and knock. And those who are poor in spirit will see their utter inability to fulfill these commands and rely on Jesus' strength to be able to do what he asks us to do. So choose to treat others how you want to be treated and you will fulfill Jesus' kingdom ethic. He goes on in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So here's the second choice that Jesus is asking his listeners to make. Choose the narrow path of discipleship and you will experience Jesus' kingdom life. Choose the narrow path of discipleship and you will experience Jesus' kingdom life. Structurally, if you look at this sermon, verse 12 kind of ends the main content of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And then you have four warnings, and today this is, this is actually the first warning to enter through the narrow gate. And then there's three more which we'll be looking at in the next three weeks. But Jesus just doesn't stop there with just explaining what kingdom life is like. He says, well, you got to enter through the narrow gate. And he, and, he, and he does it in a masterful way. He presents two 
gates, two ways, two different paths that we can take with two differing results. And we're going to see this contrast between three things. You have paths, two different paths, two kinds of people, and two different payoffs. And talking about paths, he says the gate is wide and the way is easy, whereas the other gate is narrow and the way is hard. So we see a contrast here between the size of these gates and just the nature of these paths. And the gate to the first path is narrow, and the path itself is described as hard. One of the biggest issues or one of the biggest injustices that we've done in terms of presenting the gospel is that, hey, you come to Jesus, everything is going to be great. Well, that's not what Jesus says. He says, well, enter through the narrow gate, your life is going to be hard. And I love this verse, you know, in, in one of the episodes, I think it's in Timothy, where Paul says, all who desire to give, to live a godly life will suffer persecution or suffering. And sometimes we've communicated this false truth that, hey, you come to Jesus, everything is going to be fine. No, it isn't. God doesn't promise uh, a smooth sailing And here, this road that Jesus talks about, the narrow gate which he wants us to enter, is constraining. It's, it's restrictive. It's the idea of like pressing people in so you can't walk. It's hard. And Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. Well, the other gate is wide, and the path is broad. It's roomy. It's comfortable. It's, it's spacious. doesn't require passing through the challenges and the pressures found on the narrow road. And he says, well, you make the choice. Two paths, narrow, wide. You choose. And I believe entering the narrow gate means following, in this context, it means following the path of Jesus' teaching, which is what a disciple is. A disciple is a learner. He's a follower. So it's not just, I think, you know, we, we kind of don't experience it in our context, but in Jesus' time, someone who was a disciple was almost stuck to the master. He followed the master, much like Jesus' disciples. They lived life in and, you know, in and out every day. They followed Jesus everywhere. They were at the feet of Jesus, listening to him and adopting and adhering to what Jesus was teaching. The way of Jesus' teaching is not spacious and easy like the other path. It requires self-denial, sacrificial love, and demanding the standards of righteousness as we have seen in the Sermon on the Mount so far. Well, we can't go over like all of the Sermon on the Mount, but I would strongly encourage you to go back and read what Jesus is asking us to do from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. A lot of hard things to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek, to not to be anxious about tomorrow, not to serve two masters, God and money. These are hard. Jesus says, well, that's the narrow way that I want you to follow. And then he talks about two kinds of people. The ones who enter the wide gate, they are many. And the ones who enter the narrow gate, he says, those who find it, doesn't even talk about enter, he says, those who find it are few. This shows that majority rule doesn't work when it comes to discerning eternal truths. The broad road, which is more accommodating, is the more popular road. 
And then finally, he talks about the payoff. And this is the most important aspect that must be weighed in before we make this decision. It's not the initial appeal of the gate. It's not whether it's, you know, oh, it looks broad or narrow. But these two paths lead to very differing results. The broad gate might seem more appealing and enjoyable, but it leads to a very destructive end. It says it leads to destruction. But the narrow gate, however, is difficult to walk through. It leads to a path of life. And life in the book of Matthew refers to both the fulfillment and blessing and living out the abundant life that Jesus has in the year and now, but also an extension towards eternal life, the blessings that God has for us throughout eternity as we walk this path. Yes, there is a cost to discipleship and to entering the kingdom. It is not an easy road to walk, but it's the only one where we will find life. Choose the narrow path of discipleship and you will experience Jesus' kingdom life. As much as this is a warning for Jesus' listeners during his day, it was an invitation. Jesus was inviting his listeners, his audience. You know, imagine this hymn on this mountaintop, Sermon on the Mount, and people thronging and listening to his sermon. And Jesus says, well, you've heard my sermon. Now enter through the narrow gate. And that was a shock to the original hearers because they were the Jews. The, the oracles of God was committed to them. God was with them. So they thought they were already on the narrow path. And Jesus is saying, well, no. You got to enter the narrow gate. So what does it mean for us today? Jesus is giving us the same invitation to examine the path that we are walk, walking on and to make sure to choose the path that leads to eternal life. And before I give us some tangible applications, I just have a few things to say here. Jesus doesn't talk about the entirety of our whole salvation experience in these two verses. Sometimes we kind of like extrapolate that into like these two verses and then we think, oh, everything needs to be the order of salvation. How does, how does salvation work out? That's not what he's trying to do. He's not trying to present a case for how, the manner of salvation, you know. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. It is the work of God. It's not something that we do. There's nothing that we can do that can earn God's salvation. And that's in the totality of scriptural revelation. If you read the Pauline epistles, you can make a case for that. But Jesus is not doing that. He, Jesus doesn't even talk about his death and resurrection. He's not even talking about the means by which we are saved because he shed his blood on the cross that we have forgiveness and we can get to experience eternal life. He's not talking about that. He's not even talking about the power for us to live this new life in Christ, which is through his spirit. It's not in our own strength. That's not what he's talking about. He's inviting us. He's inviting his audience and by extension us to walk the narrow path. And many of you today are already on that path. And if you are, 
this is a cause of celebration. Because your life might be hard. You might be going through trials and tribulations and suffering. Living for Christ might be hard. You know, as much as this, you know, our church might be a bubble for us. You know, a safe haven where we all think alike. We, we, you know, we kind of agree with what Jesus is saying. And then you go out in that, into the world. It's a different ballgame. There is people, you know, poo-poo what you believe in. But you can be rest assured that if you're in the narrow path, you're in the, the path that leads to life, that's eternal life, life without end. Well, if after hearing this sermon, you're unsure if you're on the narrow path, or if you've never been on the path that Jesus is talking about, this is an invitation. Choose life. Choose eternal life. And this is right from what Jesus is saying. This is not something that I'm concocting, you know, and like forcing it on you. These are the words of Jesus. And if you have questions or if you want us to pray for you, you know, Again, like I said, this is not about, Jesus is not making a case for eternal security. He's, he's, you know, we are safe and secure. If you have believed in Jesus as your Savior, you're saved and you're secure. That's not what he's talking about. But if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, today might be the day to accept his invitation. Right after service today, we're going to have a team of people right there, standing right there, who can help you out with any questions that you have and also lead you. If you want to give your lives to Jesus and enter the narrow path, today is the day. Choose to treat others. If you have two choices, choose, choose to treat others how you would like to be treated, and you will fulfill Jesus' kingdom ethic. Choose the narrow path of discipleship and you will enter into Jesus' kingdom. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for your word. God, I just marvel at the fact that you did not choose to save us, but you did by sending your son to die on the cross. And all it entails is for us to put our faith in you and the work that Jesus has done. Thank you, God, that many of us here, we've, you've adopted us into your family and we're on the narrow path. And God, we just pray that you would help us, that you would give us the grace, the strength, the encouragement that is needed to be able to walk on this path that is, that is narrow, that is hard, that is challenging, that's filled with suffering, God. God, I just pray that you would also give us the grace to be able to treat others the way we would like to be treated. Help us to make a difference in the world that we are living in, God. And God, I just also specifically pray for those who have not had a chance to experience your saving grace this morning. God, I just pray that you would, your word says that 
No one can say that Jesus Christ is Lord except through your spirit. And we just pray for your saving grace this morning to be able to lead us to that point of decision making. Lead us to the point, the path of life, Father. Thank you for your word. We give you all glory and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.